after having marked hymn number 89, as Brother Adam asked us to do, I would ask you to note with me tonight, as we made note in the bulletin, of an interesting question as it relates to some of those books found within the opening section of the New Testament. Isn't it an exciting opportunity that we have on an evening such as this one to be able to engage in a consideration of the Word of God, to deepen our understanding and our knowledge, and to be able to use that even daily as we not only improve ourselves in our Christian life, but also to interact and to share the good news with others. On the screen to my left, there on the board, on the wall I should say, we're able to appreciate, we're able to notice that as I've entitled the lesson, an overview of the gospel accounts. I would submit to you that in terms of the movement through the lesson, we will first of all consider where the gospel accounts place themselves within the core of the New Testament, and then we'll focus the spotlight one at a time on each of those accounts and seek to better appreciate and thoroughly understand the lesson and the message to be found within it. The subtitle that I've given it, Appreciating the First Four Books of the New Testament. As we begin that, note the following with me if you would. First of all, God has blessed us so mightily with the fact that we have 27 books in the New Testament. They naturally divide themselves in a systematic and a logical fashion. First of all, the first four books are the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We find in them the core element of the life of Christ. And following them, we quickly hasten to observe one New Testament book of history, the book of Acts. That book is a masterpiece in 28 chapters that presents the very element of, first of all, the establishment of the church, what it takes in order to become a Christian, and finally, the backdrop or the background for so many later New Testament books that follow it. And then, once we have arrived at that point, the life of Christ has informed us of the greatest life ever lived. We quickly have learned in Acts how to appropriate the blessings of that life to ourselves. Naturally then, beginning in Romans and continuing for 21 books, Romans through Jude, we discuss the epistles. We learn daily how to walk the Christian life, how to live and appreciate daily, mightily, the things we must do to be pleasing to our Heavenly Father. At that point, that sums to 26 total books. There's only one grand finale that remains, the book of Revelation. It is the only New Testament book of prophecy, and in that book we draw a close to the inspired letters that God delivered to the human family. In fact, notice one other way to look at this division, the life of Christ. The book of Acts tells us again how to become a Christian. Those 21 epistles inform us as to how to live the Christian life. The thing that remains, how to die in Christ how to go home to glory, how to overcome Satan, self, and sin, and thus reap the eternal reward. The book of Revelation highlights that very last element. And thus, as we see the systematic development of all these New Testament books, tonight we're going to return and again look more closely at the four gospel accounts, those books that begin this. What's their purpose? What singular mission did they send? attempt to, to set before us? What major mission and idea are they in terms of God's overall development? Well, for the first part of that's easy to explain, isn't it? We find in those four gospel accounts the singular message, the biographical details of the life of Jesus Christ. By far the greatest life to ever be lived upon this earth. 
And no wonder then, as we appreciate the thrust of those four books, they set before us without question the reality of his greatness and furthermore the fact that he was able to convince and prove that he was who he said he was. Tonight then, let us look at those books. A moment ago, Lucas read for us from John 20, verses 30 and 31. It may well be that these two verses form the best statement anywhere in the Bible of the purpose of these four gospel accounts. Notice therein again the statement the Holy Spirit allowed us to appreciate. Truly, many things did Christ or Jesus in the presence of the disciples. Those things to be noted, John informed us many other things he did besides these that were recorded. But notice he says quickly, these are recorded, these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that you may believe he's the Son of God, and that believing you may have life through his name. We notice then as John wrote that gospel account, he even placed within it a preface, if you will, a reason for as to why he wrote it. Nothing has changed about that. That is still the thrust, still the message, still the mission. Tonight then, as we recollect the thought of that John 20, verses 30 and 31, truly many things did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in these books, in this book, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. You and I realize the blessing of that spiritual life given, promised by God. Let us then look more intently into these gospel accounts and overview each one. Perhaps you've already had a question that's come to your mind, and maybe you've thought about it many times over the years. Did you notice a moment ago, we said there's one New Testament book of history, the book of Acts. There's one New Testament book of prophecy, the book of Revelation. Why do we have four gospel accounts? Why are there not one of them? Well, in fact, the New Testament provides us things that we can appreciate as answer. Notice as I have written there on that screen again, the very thought is there indeed is more than one gospel account. We've noted there's Matthew, there's Mark, there's Luke, and there's John. But isn't it amazing that these four gospel accounts serve to tell us something that we already can appreciate? They detail the greatest life ever lived. They set before us in unquestioning and very clear statements the truth, the power, and the convincing evidence of this greatest of all lives. Aren't we aware that today we are appreciative of the fact that when multiple testimonies are given with respect to something, it corroborates, it authenticates, it adds greater weight and evidence. If an accident were to take place on Pippin Road out here in front of the church building, and if there were, say, three or four individuals who witnessed it, the attending police officer likely would desire to poll each person to get his or her perspective on that which took place because by putting together the information, the added details, the perspective that each person had to offer, that policeman would be able to attain a better understanding of what happened, who was at fault, perhaps the reason for it. So it is when we come to the life of Christ. Again, the greatest life ever lived, we have not one account but four. Four individual accounts that cast the spotlight on Jesus the Christ to help us appreciate the greatness of it, the power behind it, and the many aspects and facets of it. 
But also notice another interesting reason for four gospel accounts. This one we may be tempted to overlook. When originally written, these four gospel accounts were not addressed to the same class of individuals. And thus they serve the purpose of convincing different individuals of the Messiahship of Jesus, the power of his new Christianity, and the fact that all men would ultimately be subject to it. You see, the audiences to whom the books were originally written were not the same. We'll have occasion to review that as we look at each book in detail in just a moment. And so, with regard to four gospel accounts, let's turn our attention then to the first of them as found in the New Testament, namely the gospel according to Matthew. This particular gospel account consists of 28 chapters. And as you're well aware, it has a very powerful and amazing thrust behind it. As we contemplate the nature of this gospel account, clearly it was written by Matthew. We learn in the very account itself that he was an apostle, Matthew 10, verses 1 and following. What's more, we learn that he had been and continued to serve as a publican, Matthew chapter 9. And thus, this man was a very intellectual person in the sense that he had a position and a job that allowed him to interact with many, many people. As Matthew, or as he was also known, Levi, thus he was a person who would mightily be able to appreciate the greatness of the transformation through Jesus. And what's more, oh, how mightily he wrote about that. In fact, do we not learn rather quickly that his gospel account was written originally for those that were of Jewish background, those that were of Hebrew extraction. Notice some of the ways in which we understand and know that fact. One of the most interesting things about this gospel account is we read through the 28 chapters. We can see over and over again that Matthew emphasizes that Jesus was the Christ, but he emphasizes it for those who knew the Old Testament. In fact, quite often in Matthew's account, we see hundreds and hundreds of Old Testament references and illusions. Time and again he says, as the prophet saith, or it was written. As we think about that, notice then that those to whom Matthew wrote that gospel account knew the Old Testament scriptures. Otherwise, that would have been very unimpressive to them. Well, notice the Jews, the Hebrews, if you will, they in fact knew that Old Testament because it had been read to them every Sabbath. It was read to them in the services of the temple and of the tabernacle and even later in the synagogues. They appreciated the Old Testament and the power behind the promised Messiah. And as they looked forward to his coming, in order for them to believe that Jesus was the Christ, they would have had to be shown that he fulfills minutely and exactly all of those Old Testament prophecies. And that's exactly what Matthew did. Hundreds of times he said, the Lord fulfilled that prophecy. In fact, in that interesting scene of Matthew chapter 4, on that occasion when Jesus was there tempted there in the wilderness, three different times he said, it is written. And yet, to those that were Jews, they would have known very well where the Lord quoted that from, the book of Deuteronomy. On many other occasions, Jesus in various activities and things about his person, Matthew says he fulfilled one or more Old Testament prophecies. The Jew would have been mightily impressed to see that Jesus fulfilled all of them and that not only did he fulfill them, 
He fulfilled them exactly and precisely the way they were written. Notice some of the other things then that I have placed there on the wall that we can understand that helps us know all of those things. Have you ever thought about the genealogy recorded in Matthew 1? That's not the only genealogy recorded in the New Testament, but with regard to the genealogy of Jesus, where does Matthew trace the Lord back to? He traces him back to Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation. Again, to the Jew, they knew that that promised Messiah should be a descendant of Abraham, and Matthew proves that he was. Furthermore, notice the emphasis laid in the gospel according to Matthew on the kingdom. The Messiah, according to the Old Testament, would reign over a kingdom. Thus, Matthew emphasizes on many occasions the existence in the coming soon of that kingdom. For instance, in Matthew chapter 16, isn't it amazing that when the Lord came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, his apostles, whom say ye that I am? Isn't it amazing that they responded with four answers? Elijah, John the Baptist, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But then in a very direct fashion he said, who do you say that I am? In the aftermath of that discussion to Peter he said, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto me, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I'll give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven." Notice the thrust of the kingdom. The Lord said, the kingdom, Peter, it will be founded upon the eternal truth that you've stated, and even the gates of hell itself shall not prevail against it. Earlier we remember that the Lord had made mention of that kingdom in other ways. In Matthew 4, verse 17, Jesus there preached, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist in Matthew 3, verse 2 had said the same thing. Perhaps we've noted enough to remind us then that Matthew emphasizes the kingdom. What's more, might we remember that interestingly unique section to the gospel according to Matthew? In chapters 5, 6, and 7, we have what you and I typically call the Sermon on the Mount. That singular topic and subject in which Jesus taught about the law that would govern that kingdom. And isn't it interesting that seven times in Matthew 5, Jesus said, Ye have heard that it was said, but I say unto you. That kingdom would not have a set of laws that, with which they had been familiar in the Old Testament. It would be a New Testament, a new covenant. And so it was that when that kingdom came into existence, it was founded upon a new law, that New Testament, of which you and I, of course, are blessed even to this day. Might we notice then that in the closing chapter of that gospel account, we come to what may well be the key passage in all the book. Remembering again the nature of what the Jew expected and the fact that Jesus was proven to them to be the Son of God, notice how the book ends in Matthew 28, starting in verse 18. To the Jew who appreciated the greatness of that kingdom, Jesus said, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even in the end of the world. 
what a great kingdom it would be. And thus, as that statement was made to the Jew, how impressive it would have been. But perhaps in the brief time we have tonight, we have sketched briefly the thrust of Matthew. When we turn the page to Mark, we come to a different book. What was the thrust of this book? Who was the audience to whom it was written? And furthermore, what are the major thoughts and the major premises to be found in it? We notice very quickly when we come to the book of Mark a number of distinctions. Let's highlight some of these rather briefly as I have tried to summarize for you. This book was written not by Matthew, of course, but by a gentleman named John Mark. We encounter him more than once in the New Testament. We learn, first of all, he was very closely associated with Peter, according to 1 Peter 5.13. Furthermore, he was a kinsman or a relative of a man named Barnabas. And oh, how interesting we see him on the first gospel mission journey in Acts 13 and following. In other words, John Mark had at his disposal a number of important individuals who could aid him in the writing of this inspired account, and thus the book of Mark. Have you ever noticed many of the things that are contained in Matthew that are not contained in Mark? Let us notice in just a moment how those differences can help us understand the thrust of this book. Mark wasn't written, you see, to the Jew. It wasn't written to those of Hebrew extraction. Rather, it was written to those that were of Roman background. Notice, in fact, a moment ago, we appreciated the fact that Matthew time and again quotes the Old Testament and uses that to prove to his audience that Jesus was the Christ. Mark almost never quotes the Old Testament. Rarely, if ever, does he allude to it or refer to it. We can now understand more deeply why that is. The Romans were Gentiles. They didn't have the Old Testament. They wouldn't have known the prophecies. It would have been very meaningless to them to quote them and show that Jesus fulfilled them. But rather, the Roman mindset was very different. Rome ruled the world in the day of Jesus. That Roman Empire was mighty, it was powerful, it was majestic, and furthermore, it was authoritative. And thus, the Roman appreciated power. He appreciated directness. He wanted things direct and to the point. You didn't beat around the bush with a Roman. If you had something to say, he wanted you to say it and get right to the point. Well, that's exactly what Mark did. Mark is the briefest of the Gospel accounts. It only has 16 chapters. And yet, in those 16 chapters, he illustrates the power of the Christ and proves to the Roman that Jesus is all-powerful. The respect that, in fact, Jesus would have needed to show to those Gentiles, to those of Roman background, was such that that's precisely what Mark highlights. Speaking of power, have you ever noticed that one of the key words in Mark's gospel account is the word immediately, the word straightway? Forty-two times in 16 chapters that word appears. Thus, Mark illustrates the fact that when the Lord accomplished something, it was immediate. It didn't happen slowly. Over a long period of time, it happened instantly. And so it was that as Jesus illustrated that point, notice one other thing that's very impressive about this gospel account. Inasmuch as it highlights the Lord's actions, though Mark is the briefest of the gospel accounts, it records 20 of his miracles. 20 of them. 
That's interesting, isn't it? You would have thought maybe that Luke or Matthew would, but it's Mark that specifies and highlights the Lord's miraculous actions as he stilled a storm or raised the dead or healed a blind man. Mark, you see, emphasizes the powerful character and the accomplishment by which the word of Christ could make things occur. Again, Mark is the gospel, if you will, of power. Notice some of the text to be found in this gospel account. In Mark 7, verse 37, we notice that it says, Speaking of Jesus, He hath done all things well. To a Roman, that would have been impressive. After all, they liked when things were done perfectly and well, and yet Jesus has done all things well, Mark said. It could be that you and I have known of individuals who were sufficiently skilled or talented to do many things well. Jesus did all things well. One chapter later in Mark 8, notice verses 36 and 37. This particular text is most amazingly here recorded by Mark. And notice again for the Roman, Rome ruled the world at the time of Jesus. Their empire stretched far north and south, far east and west. And yet it was to these very individuals that Mark wrote, If a man gain the whole world and lose his own soul, he's lost everything. What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? To the Roman, that would have taken them aback. It would have caused them to think twice about that on which they had based their life and the very perspective that had grounded in them for so long. Oh, indeed, the gospel of power as it's housed in the book of Mark, it shows Jesus to immediately steal storms and quiet tumults and to amazingly and powerfully be able to reach into the life of those and tell them immediately and precisely what they needed. When blind Bartimaeus was healed in Mark 10, beginning in verse 43, we remember the quickness with which that was accomplished and the amazing response of those who witnessed it. That was the whole purpose and thrust of the book of Mark. But isn't it interesting that as that book closes, we again appreciate that it ends with the powerful character of this one who stated going to all the world and preached the gospel to every creature. This kingdom of which there Mark recorded was more expansive than the Roman Empire. It was more expansive than the nature of that empire that Romans understood. We again see that would have been meaningful to the Roman. And oh, how this gospel account emphasized the greatness and power of that great Jesus Christ. Having looked at Matthew and Mark, we have come to the point of realizing that these books to be sure, exhibit the greatness of the life of Jesus, but they do it by emphasizing various parts of his life. What about when we come to Luke, the third of the New Testament gospel accounts? The book of Luke, as you can well understand, is again distinct from the two that preceded it. The gospel according to Luke. We've been studying the book of Acts on Wednesday evening, and we remember that Luke was a physician and thus a very learned man. As the book of Luke opens, he informs us he had traced carefully and thoroughly the life of Christ, and thus what he recorded had been traced completely. And as he was inspired of the Holy Spirit, that leads us to, of course, place great historical confidence on exactly what Luke recorded. This book is lengthier than Mark. It is roughly the same length in terms of number of verses and words as Matthew. Isn't it interesting, though, to see the distinction in this book compared to the other two? Remember, 
the book of Luke was not written to the Jew, nor was it written to the Roman. It was written to a different classification of people. In the first century, another large group or class of people that occupied the earth were Greek in background. Remember, that empire that had ruled the world prior to Rome was Greece, led by Alexander the Great and Philip of Macedon and other great rulers like them. They had spread Greek culture all over the known world that time. Rome had replaced that in parts, but not completely. And thus, Luke penned this gospel account specifically to those that were of Grecian background, those that were Greek in history and in origin. And to them, they had a different mindset than the Roman. They had a different mindset than the Hebrew. You and I have learned in our studies in school that Greeks were very learned individuals, philosophers, if you will. They are the civilization that gave us such people as Plato and Aristotle and Socrates, those great thinkers of the day. To them, reason was important. To them, idealness was important. And that's exactly how Jesus is presented in the Gospel according to Luke. In fact, notice early on in that gospel account, we notice in Luke 2 verse 52, perhaps the key verse in the whole book, there it is said of Christ, speaking of Christ, he increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Perfect and ideal in every respect. One of the key statements made by those of ancient Greece was, you give us your children and we will turn them into the perfect specimens of humanity. Well, notice Luke says here that Christ increased in wisdom, stature, and favor. Thus, he was in fact very skilled in terms of intellectual capability. He was rather skilled in social aspects. Furthermore, in stature, he had grown to be a full man. But in terms of Greek perspective, the Greeks were lacking something, and Jesus even had that. For notice it says, He also increased in favor with God. The Greeks had ignored that. But Jesus increased in all four ways, and truly He was the perfect and ideal specimen of humanity. Ideal in every sense. Throughout this book, Jesus is presented that very way. Notice some of the ways that we see that exemplified in this book. We noted earlier that Matthew recorded a genealogy of Jesus. Where did that stop? It was at Abraham. Matthew traced the Lord back to the father of the Hebrew nation, Abraham. Where does Luke's gospel account trace the Lord to? Far back beyond Abraham, back all the way to Adam, the first man. To the Greek again, how impressive that would have been. In fact, predating all of those others that were in existence, such as Abraham or Noah, all the way back to the very first human being. That's where the Lord was traced to. But notice also, more details about the virgin birth of Christ are given in this book. We notice that his birth was, in fact, given by details even with regard to John the Baptist's birth through Elizabeth and Zechariah and the Lord's miraculous conception by the Virgin Mary. It's in chapter 2, in fact, of this book. We learn that they had gone, if you will, to pay their taxes or to be enrolled in the census. And there in Bethlehem of Judea was the Christ child born. The amazing features and facts of this book seem to deepen and heighten when we realize that there is a unique section in this book. 
In fact, from Luke 9, verse 51, continuing through well over ten chapters, all of that material in the book of Luke is unique to this book. It isn't found in Mark, nor in John, nor in Matthew. Have you ever thought about some of those unique features in that section of Luke? Some of the most well-known parables are in that section. In Luke chapter 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan, or those events that we recognize about that Good Samaritan, or what about in Luke chapter 15, that threefold said about the lost coin and the lost sheep and the lost boy? All of them found in the same 15th chapter of the gospel according to Luke. Might we also remember that unique section that closes Luke 16, where there we read about a rich man and Lazarus. We could go on listing the unique features of that section, but don't we notice all of them were recorded while the Lord was on that road to Jerusalem where he would meet his final demise and ultimately be crucified. That unique section is so special and so loved. Perhaps your favorite passage is actually found somewhere in that section. Might we notice, though, another comment or two about this gospel according to Luke? Isn't it amazing that as this book nears its close, we learn again one more time about the completeness of the character of that Christ in Luke 24, verse number 44. We read that Jesus himself speaking says, All that hath been written in the law of Moses and in the Psalms and in the prophets concerning me hath been fulfilled. All of it. No prophecy that should have been fulfilled in him was not fulfilled. The Lord thus directly to those gathered there and walked with him on the road to Emmaus, he informed them and told them that the scriptures having been opened and were fulfilled in him. We see then that this beloved physician Luke recorded a masterpiece of a gospel account, impressing those Grecians with the fact that Jesus was the ideal specimen of humanity and that as much he was the Son of God and that all eyes should turn toward him. Maybe at this point, as we look at these three gospel accounts, and perhaps make some summarizing remarks concerning them, might we summarize them by using a somewhat fancy term, but it really isn't a difficult term. In fact, the term synoptic is sometimes used to describe the first three books of the New Testament. Now what does that word mean? It means similar. That's all it means. And isn't it true that on occasion you and I realize that Matthew, Mark, and Luke do have some similar features? They often will record the same miracle or the same parable or perhaps the same discussion or the same discourse. But inasmuch as they record that, someone at some point has given this fancy name synoptic to just mean that there's a similarity between these first three books. You and I have noted, though, tonight that there are some differences, and those differences are significant. They highlight the special purpose of that book and the audience to whom it was written. But as we think about that so easily and carefully, it does perhaps remind us that there's one gospel account not listed in that. Where's John? John is not listed as a synoptic gospel account, and I wonder why. What's different about that book? Why through the ages has a distinction been observed so that that book is not called a synoptic gospel account? Well, perhaps in the, as we look at the last of the gospel accounts tonight, we'll be ready to see that very thing. 
So look with me, if you would, for a moment at the Gospel according to John. This is the fourth of those Gospel accounts. It was written by that beloved apostle of love, the apostle known as John. As we remember that one of the phrases that so often identified him, he was the one whom the Lord loved. That very special disciple, in fact, to whom Jesus gave care of his mother while he was on the cross. He said, Woman, behold thy son, and it was to John whom he was speaking. Isn't that interesting? We see then that this last gospel account, not only written by John, but it has many special features that in fact cause us to see it's not in many ways similar to the other three gospel accounts. Similar, of course, in that it discusses Jesus. But notice some of the things that make this gospel account so very different. First, it was written much later than the other three gospel accounts. Whereas Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in fact, were written rather early, and Mark apparently was the first of the gospel accounts to be written, John was written much, much later. In fact, perhaps almost 30 years later than the other three. In fact, as we read through the book, John informs us he wrote it specifically to address some of the false teachings that had arisen by that particular time. But that isn't the only difference. In fact, perhaps one of the most amazing things is that this book wasn't written for a specific class of people. It was written for all mankind. And it illustrated and emphasized the divinity of Jesus, the greatness and power from all perspectives. So much so that notice the personal character of Jesus. It's true that in the other three gospel accounts we see Jesus interacting personally with others, but John especially emphasizes it. In chapter 3, a lone man by night named Nicodemus came to him and Jesus spoke with him, talked with him, preached to him. In the very next chapter, a lone woman at a well in Sychar spoke with the Lord and he spoke with her. Don't we remember the easiness and the power of that conversation and the great effect he had on her life and even the whole city? When we come to the later chapters, notice in chapter 9, the Lord carried on an extended conversation with a man that had been born blind. Already we've seen his interaction with women, his interaction with those that were outcast, those that were handicapped. We've seen his interaction with Nicodemus, who was a ruling Pharisee. The gospel knows no bounds. John emphasized that fact. The Lord interacted and was personally interested in every person. But notice some other distinctions. We also notice in this gospel account a marvelous fact. How many parables are found in it? Not one. We read about parables in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but John records not a single parable. Not one. But what he does record are these lengthy sermons or these lengthy discourses. We mentioned a moment ago Nicodemus, starting in verse number 1 of John 3 and extended through virtually the whole chapter, the Lord spoke with Nicodemus. In chapter 4, extended for well over 40 verses, the Lord entered into conversation with that woman. In chapter 9, extending again for well over 35 verses, the fact of the Lord's discussion with a man born blind. In chapter 11, that lengthy series of events surrounding the raising of his good friend named Lazarus. 
John emphasizes these long discussions, these story form events in which he shows the Lord's divinity and his interest in each and every person. As we see all that in the book of John, it may be fair to note yet another distinction. Have you ever noticed that in the 21 chapters of the gospel according to John, starting in chapter 13, we encounter something very, very exciting. Notice, starting in chapter 13 and continuing all the way through the end of the book, so we can easily see that makes nine total chapters, we notice that John cast the spotlight in those chapters on the events in the life of Jesus that occurred in the last couple of days. The last couple of days. Isn't that interesting? It's almost as though out of the 21 chapters, almost half the book covers events over the last day or two of Jesus' life. It's easy to see then what John had in mind and what he wanted to emphasize. There had been false teaching arising relative to those last several hours of his life, and John wrote to correct those false teachings. But in that correction, how beautifully he emphasized all that took place. After all, it is in John that we read about those events where the Lord washed the feet of his apostles in John 13. It is in the book of John that we read in chapters 14, 15, and 16 of that majestic discussion of the Holy Spirit. It is in the book of John that we read about that beautiful prayer. Our Lord prayed where he prayed for unity. He prayed for his apostles. He prayed for all who for all time would believe on him through their word. John 17, verses 20 and 21. All of that we find in the book of John. We can then see that this gospel account is somewhat different, but yet inspired. And in its inspiration, it still has eternal lessons that you and I should learn as we study it and the things highlighted in it. As we've looked so far then at these four gospel accounts, we would be remiss, though, not to notice how all four of them end. We briefly mentioned it earlier, but as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John draw to their close, all of them emphasize the death of this perfect one. To the Jew, written by Matthew, he was the Messiah, and yet men, wicked in character, put him to death. To those that were Roman in character, Mark wrote there in chapter 15 that again this most powerful one was put to death. This ideal man in the book of Luke in chapter 23 was nailed on a cross and put to death. In John 19, this same one who was interested in everybody, who never did anyone ill or mean or ugliness, he again was put to death. All four gospel accounts, not a one of them leave that out. This one was put to death. But just as surely as they all record that, the very next chapter, in this case being Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, and John 20, they all record that he rose on that beautiful Lord's Day morning, triumphant over hell, triumphant over death, triumphant over the grave. Satan was not able to defeat him. Powerfully and triumphantly and victoriously he came forth to provide for all who will follow him the same victory, the same triumphant character over all the forces of evil. That's what these gospel accounts present to us. And they set the stage for the very next chapter, which would be Acts chapter 1. They have prepared us for the establishment of the kingdom and its growth. No wonder Paul could say in Colossians 1.23 that, that by that time the word had been preached to every creature under heaven. 
What a powerful word. And these gospel accounts set the stage for that growth. They told in no uncertain terms about the powerful, inspired life of Jesus, that he was the Son of God. Today, some 21 centuries later, we still need the same lessons found in those gospel accounts because the same man is still Lord of all. Acts 10, verses 36 and 38. Have you humbly bowed to the Lord of all? Have you been able to recognize the greatness of the gospel accounts and to see them embodied in your life as you apply the teachings of Jesus to your life? It could be that in fairness we could summarize the lesson in all of these by turning back our attention to that scene again of John 20, verses 30 and 31. As that was read earlier now, let us revisit it and make this brief comment. And truly many signs did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, John said, that ye may believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that believing ye may have life through his name. You see, the gospel accounts are here for my betterment and yours as we read time and again about this perfect one named Jesus, what he taught, what he accomplished, and the difference he can make in my life and yours. Have you submitted faithfully and obediently to him? Have you given control of your life over to the one who can control all things? Understand, in these gospel accounts, he himself taught that we must believe upon him, John 8, 24. We must repent of our sins, Luke 13, 5. We must furthermore confess his sweet name as our Savior, Matthew 10, 32 and 33. And finally, we must be immersed, baptized for the remission of sin, Mark 16, verse 16. If you have not submitted to that, let tonight be the night. What a joyous occurrence and a joyous occasion. You can then be admitted by the Lord into his body. No human adds you to the church. It's not the elders here at Pippin, or nor is it myself. The Lord does that. And oh, how great an addition that is. If you have become a Christian, though, and have not remained faithful and true to that calling, have not walked faithfully in accordance to the high vocation to which you were called, Ephesians 4.1, then there's opportunity to make that right tonight. We're going to stand together in a moment and sing a hymn of encouragement. If we could be of assistance to anyone in your obedience to the gospel, whether initially or to be rededicated, it would not only be a privilege, it would be our honor to be of assistance to you. Just let us know that even now while together we stand and while we sing.